Let's pray together now. Let's all pray. Father, we've just sung of the work of the Holy Spirit, and we know that we all need his help now. We pray that you would send your spirit amongst us this morning, equipping and enabling me as preacher, giving illumination to all of us as we look into your word, and that he, as the spirit of the risen Christ, would empower us to live new lives of obedience that are pleasing to you. We ask it all for your glory, and in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So please do have your Bible open there, if possible, at uh, those words we read earlier on, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 and verses 11 through 16. This is our penultimate foray into this uh, great letter. And if you're here last week, you'll know we spend our time looking at verses 3 to 10, where Paul describes to Timothy these five symptoms of false teaching, or literally, as he describes it, unhealthy teaching. And of course, as we know, there had been this outbreak of unhealthy teaching in the church in Ephesus. And Paul said to Timothy, you can diagnose the, the false or unhealthy teaching when you spot these five symptoms of it. Firstly, it is simply unbiblical teaching. And as well as that, it is characterized by pride, ignorance, controversy, and greed. And as we saw last week, it's Timothy's job as the minister there in that church in Ephesus to identify and to contain this outbreak so that the church as a whole remains healthy. Now, how is Timothy going to do that? And we come to this next paragraph, starting from verse 11. And we'll see that Paul gives Timothy these five instructions to follow. So we've had five symptoms, and now there are five instructions for Timothy as he seeks to contain the outbreak of the unhealthy teaching so that he remains healthy himself and his church doesn't get infected by the spread of this false teaching. And so Paul says to him, but as for you, O man of God, it's a very lofty title, isn't it, that Paul uses? It's a, a title which is often used in the Old Testament, and it describes the great leaders of God's people. King David, or the prophet Elijah, they're described in this way as men of God, or the man of God. And very deliberately, Paul takes that title, and he now bestows it on Timothy here, weak, timid, young Timothy. He needs to know he is a man of God. Someone has put it, this title shows Timothy that he is in God's service, represents God, and speaks in his name. And what are these five instructions that Timothy, as a man of God, must follow if he's to deal with this outbreak of false, unhealthy teaching in the church there in Ephesus. Well, we'll sum them up 
uh, with a single word or a single phrase each time. And the first one is flee. That's what Paul's saying in verse 11, isn't it? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And Paul is looking back on that previous paragraph which we saw last week. Those five deadly symptoms of false teaching. And he's saying to Timothy, the first thing you need to do as a man of God is to run away from those things. Run away from teaching that is unbiblical. Run away from teaching that is proud and yet ignorant. Run away from an unhealthy desire for controversy. Run away from greed. And in particular, you remember Paul spent some time describing how destructive greed can be. He said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Timothy needs to flee from those things, get away from them as quickly as he possibly can. We might think of the example of Joseph back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, the way that he fled from Potiphar's wife when she tried to seduce him. And of course the wise and the godly thing for Joseph to do in that situation was not to stay and to try and reason with Mrs. Potiphar. No, the wise and godly thing for him to do was exactly what he did do and that was to get out of there as soon as possible. Someone has put it, if we desire to be men and women of God, there are times we must show our back to evil and run as fast as our legs will take us in the other direction. And so ask yourself in your own Christian life right now, what do you need to be fleeing from? What is the, the type of temptation that you struggle with the most? And as well as identifying that temptation, ask yourself, well, where and when, or perhaps with whom, is that temptation at its very strongest? And then consider what practical things do you need to put in place so that you can flee from that temptation. And of course, one essential thing you must do is you must pray about it, because only by God's grace are we ever able to withstand temptation. And yet it's no good praying our Father lead us not into temptation if then we ourselves deliberately walk straight in to that temptation. Paul says, man of God or woman of God, flee from these things. And the Christian life is not just about running away from things all the time, is it? That would make the Christian life very negative if that's all that there was to it. Just simply running from things that tempt us, saying no to, to everything. It's important we see there, there is a positive counterpart to this. There is also running towards certain things as well as running away from certain things. 
And that brings us then to the, the second instruction, doesn't it, that Paul sets before Timothy here. And we sum that up with the word pursue. Flee and pursue. And Paul gives Timothy actually six things to pursue. There's quite a, a list here. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Notice they come in pairs, these six items. The first two, righteousness and godliness. This is talking about right relationship with God and others. So righteousness means fair or just dealings with other people. Living in right relationship with those around us, those in our church family, those at home, those in our workplace, those at school, and so forth. Righteousness, living in right relationship with those around us. And godliness is, of course, right relationship with God, living a way that is pleasing to him, submitting to his ways and to his will, obeying what he says to us. And then the next two, faith and love, they're clearly key Christian virtues, aren't they? As well as that, they are both aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's by the work of the Spirit in us that we're able to live faithful Christian lives. And of course, faith shows itself, doesn't it? It shows itself in love. As Paul says to the, the Galatians, faith working through love. And then the final two, steadfastness and gentleness. They're both about responding to difficult things. So steadfastness is how to respond to difficult circumstances. By God's grace, keeping going as a Christian, even in difficult times. And then gentleness is about how to respond to difficult people. Not being impatient with them. Not losing our temper. But rather showing the gentleness of Christ in how we relate to other people. And again, it's worth asking, isn't it? What is it going to look like for me? in my Christian life right now, to pursue these things, to chase after them with all the strength that God gives me? How can I live in right relationship with those around me and right relationship with God? Where do I need to display greater faithfulness and greater love in my Christian life? In what difficult situation that I'm currently dealing with do I need to cry out to God to give me the steadfastness so that I can keep on living for him, even in these circumstances? And with which person or with which people who I sometimes find difficult, do I need to be more gentle in terms of how I respond to them and relate to them? Who do I need to be gentle towards? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, Paul tells Timothy, pursue these things. Run away from evil, but pursue, run towards these virtues in the Christian life. And then the third instruction is this, fight. Verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. It's the faith, that is the truth. Paul's talking about contending for the truth of God's word here. Remember how he used that kind of imagery earlier on in the letter, way back in chapter 1. Wage the good warfare. There was a battle going on in Ephesus. 
There had been this outbreak of false, unhealthy teaching in the church. The church in Ephesus had become a battleground for the truth. And whilst it's not good to have an unhealthy craving for controversy, chapter 6, verse 4, there are times when it's right to fight. And it's right to fight when the truth is under threat. And this was such a time, says Paul. These unbiblical, deceitful, demonic, demanding doctrines had wormed their way into the church. And Timothy must now wage the good warfare and fight the good fight for the faith. And how is he going to do this? Well, Paul has already told Timothy in the letter, the primary weapon in the good fight of the faith is the faithful preaching of God's word. That's what he stressed particularly in chapter 4, wasn't it? He said to him, if you put these things before the brothers, before the church there, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Later on in chapter 4, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And if we're going to be men and women of God today, we need to fight the good fight of the faith. And that will involve asking, in the culture in which we live today, where is the word of God, the truth, undergoing its most sustained attack. And then in turn, how do we declare especially that truth clearly and faithfully to the world around us? There's a very well-known quotation which is usually attributed to Martin Luther. In all likelihood, it's wrongly attributed to him. In fact, it was probably said by someone else, but... Uh, Luther gets the credit for it, uh, and if he didn't say it, he should have uh, said it. Uh, It's worth hearing again what uh, Luther or whoever it was said uh, on this matter. The quotation is as follows. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. That one point on the battlefield where the battle rages most fiercely against the truth of God's word. I wonder what would you say is the part of the battlefield for truth where the devil and the world are attacking most fiercely today. There are some obvious examples, aren't there? The doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the image of God in man, as we were thinking about at our office bearers conference over these past couple of days, the implications of that doctrine of the image of God in man in terms of our understanding of gender, Marriage, sexuality, uh, the sanctity of life, even within the womb, as well as that the doctrine of scripture, the authority and necessity 
sufficiency of God's word, the uniqueness of Christ as the only saviour. These are all things that are under attack. All doctrines where in particular the church today is called to fight the good fight of the faith. And that brings us now to the, the fourth instruction that Paul has for Timothy, and that is take hold. Take hold. Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what is the eternal life that Paul speaks of here? He doesn't just mean life that lasts forever, although, of course, eternal life does last forever. But when the Bible speaks of eternal life, It has more to do with the quality of that life, not just its duration. The quality is that it's the life that belongs to the age to come. And in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus is there praying to his father and he defines in that prayer what this eternal life is. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And you see, eternal life is life knowing God the Father and knowing his Son, Jesus Christ, and knowing them through the work of the Holy Spirit, and then living in the joy of that relationship with the triune God, now and forever. And it should make us ask, shouldn't it? Well, if Timothy already has that eternal life because he's a Christian and because he knows God, well, how can Paul then tell him to take hold of that eternal life if it's something which is already in Timothy's possession? And it is possible, isn't it, to possess something and yet to not fully embrace it and not fully enjoy it. Imagine, for example, that you... You buy a new car, brand new car, and of course it's yours, it's your possession. And yet when you get it home for the first time, you you park it in the garage and you never take it out for a drive. And maybe occasionally you open the garage door and you look inside and while you're sure glad that that car is yours, it's your possession, but... The reality is you've never really made the most of it. You don't enjoy it to the full, not not like you ought to do. And you see, Paul is saying as Christians, we can do that with eternal life. Eternal life is ours already if we're in Christ. Because already we are new creations in Christ, raised to new spiritual, everlasting, indestructible life in Christ Jesus. God the Father has adopted us. He's brought us into his household, his family. We're united to God the Son. God the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And having been brought into fellowship with this triune God, eternal life is ours now and forever. And yet the truth of the matter is that we can possess that eternal life and yet fail to enjoy it to the full. And that is you can end up drifting along in your Christian life, going through the motions and hardly ever contemplating what it means truly to have God as your father and to be united to God the son 
and to have God the Holy Spirit living within you and all the blessings that this means for us, all the spiritual riches that are ours now in Christ Jesus. You can have those things and not really enjoy them to the full. And Paul is saying to Timothy, don't make that mistake in your Christian life. Take hold of the eternal life. Grasp it, grab it, cling on to it for all that it's worth. The word that Paul actually uses here for taking hold is the word that is used in the Gospels to describe Jesus grabbing hold of Peter when he's about to sink. It's the word as well used to describe the way in which the crowd in the book of Acts grabbed Paul to drag him out of the the temple. It's a very vivid, dramatic word. Kent Hughes writes, We are to grab onto the eternal life that is already ours and ride it for all it's worth through the ups and downs of following Christ. Eternal life, the knowledge of God the Father and Christ his Son, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of sins forgiven, the peace of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, the joy of service, the love of God. These are the things we must grab onto and joyously hold until we arrive in heaven. I wonder, is that a description of how you're living your Christian life at the moment? Are you taking hold of the eternal life that is already yours in Christ? Paul gives Timothy two reasons why he must do that. Firstly, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So remember, Timothy, the reason you have this eternal life in the first place is all because of God's work in your life, calling you out of spiritual death and calling you into spiritual eternal life. And if God himself has called you to it, of course you should take hold of it. Of course you should make the most of it. This is the work of God in you. The second reason is this. It's the eternal life about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now we don't know, but Paul is maybe here talking about Timothy's baptism. An occasion when in front of a gathering of people, the church family, friends and other family members and so forth, Timothy himself publicly professed faith in Jesus. Publicly declared that in Christ, He had been brought to new spiritual life. And Paul is saying here, Timothy, since all those people heard you make that profession, heard you say that you had eternal life now in Christ Jesus, let them see that in action. Take hold of that eternal life so that all of those witnesses, your church family, your friends, your extended family, so that all of those people see for sure that you are alive forevermore in Christ. And then fifthly and finally, Paul's instruction to Timothy is keep. He says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Now the commandment that Paul mentions here, I think, is Timothy's calling to the ministry. His responsibility to, in that ministry to uphold the true Christian faith. And that is, as Paul describes it down in verse 20, the, the de- deposit that has been entrusted uh, 
to Timothy. Timothy is to preach the gospel, command and teach these truths of God's word, guard it against anything that would contaminate it. He's to keep every aspect of his ministry free from stains, free from reproach. And how does he do that? Well, there's two main ways Paul has told him in this letter. You keep the ministry unstained. Keep it unstained, first of all, from moral stains. And secondly, from doctrinal stains. Remember how Paul summed up those two things, moral purity and doctrinal purity. Back in chapter 4, verse 16, he said to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching." See the the distinction, moral purity, doctrinal purity. And this charge to to keep the whole ministry unstained, free from reproach, it's going to be difficult for Timothy, isn't it? After all, he's a sinful person, like we're all sinful. He's vulnerable to temptation. So moral purity is going to be a challenge for him, just as it is for all of us. And as well as that, Doctrinal purity is going to be a challenge for Timothy because there's been this outbreak of false teaching within his church. And as Timothy is ministering in that context, how does he keep his ministry free from those errors that are abounding in the church family at that time? And so Paul gives a number of encouragements to Timothy here. And he's seeking to assure Timothy that even though in his own strength he cannot fulfill his ministry and keep it unstained, through God he can. And just very, very quickly as we come to a close, I want to point out four encouragements that Paul gives to Timothy as Timothy seeks to keep his ministry unstained and free from reproach. Here's number one, rest in God's power. Rest in God's power. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. The God who Timothy is serving is the God in whom is life and who gives life to all things. He spoke this whole creation into existence by the word of his power. And as John puts it in his prologue in John chapter 1, speaking of the eternal son, the word, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of man. And since God is the one who made all things and gives life to all things. And since Timothy himself has been brought to eternal life by God. He has all the resources he needs at his disposal to fulfill his ministry in Ephesus. Not in his own strength. But as he rests in God's almighty power. And secondly, Paul says, follow Christ's example. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. And so when Timothy's up against it in Ephesus, when he's struggling to stay faithful to God and when the heat is on, he needs to remember that Jesus has gone before him. And even with the cross looming large ahead of him, even with the Jews baying for his blood, and even with the Romans cross-examining him, Jesus remained faithful. His testimony remained unstained. 
And Paul is saying to Timothy, you see, look to Jesus. Follow his example. He has set an example for you as he himself suffered. And the spirit who empowered Jesus in his ministry now lives in you. And that same spirit of Christ will empower you for your ministry as he conforms you to the likeness of Jesus. And so in the power of the spirit, follow, follow Christ's example. And then thirdly, look forward to Christ's return. Paul says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. When ministry is hard, Timothy, keep your eyes fixed on the finish line. No one gives up when they've got their eyes on the finish line, do they? And the finish line is that one day Jesus will come back and the work will all be done. And at last we can all go home and we'll enter into the fullness of eternal life, the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. That's the finish line, isn't it? And Christian, when the the going is tough, look forward to Christ's return and keep going. Keep your eyes on the finish line. And then finally, be assured by God's glory. Be assured by God's glory. Paul breaks out into this doxology, doesn't he? This wonderful section of praise that rejoices in God's sovereignty over all things. His transcendence, his self-existence, his otherness, his holiness, his worthiness, his everlasting reign. Paul says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And the point is simply, Timothy, be assured by God's glory. And all those many challenges you face in your ministry and in your Christian life, they may be big challenges. But really they are tiny in comparison to God. And spend a a few minutes contemplating the doctrine of God, his divine attributes. And it puts everything else into perspective, doesn't it? These are the great encouragements to Timothy as he seeks to serve God in Ephesus. And they're great encouragements to us as well, aren't they? As we seek to serve God here in all these ways that we've considered this morning. And as sometimes the going's hard, Paul encourages us with these things. Rest in God's power. Follow Christ's example. Look forward to Christ's return and be assured by God's glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the instruction that is given to us in these verses. And we look to you now and we pray that by your grace at work within us, we might put into practice all of these things. And we ask, Father, that you would help us all to flee from all evil and all temptation and instead to pursue righteousness and godliness, faith and love, 
steadfastness and gentleness. Help us to fight the good fight of the faith, standing up for your truth and doing so especially on those points at which it is under the fiercest attack today. Help us to take hold of the eternal life that is already ours in Christ. Help us to enjoy to the full what it means to live in relationship with you, the triune God. And help us to keep ourselves and our ministry free from the stains of moral and doctrinal error. And Father, we know how difficult this can be. So help us to rest in your power. Help us to follow Christ's perfect example. Help us to look forward to the day of his return and assure us by your glory. Our Father, we pray these things in the strong and the precious name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.